The Lord is good, and one of the great instances or examples of his goodness is the fact that he has given us his word. And uh, this morning, as I said a moment ago, we're going to be taking a look at uh, the book of Jonah. And so if you haven't already found it, uh, please turn with me to Jonah chapter 1. We're going to be reading just three verses. This is an introductory message. Uh, We'll uh, have more to say about this in the weeks to come. But verses 1 through 3 of chapter 1 of the book of Jonah. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it and to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Now, everyone knows the story of Jonah. Even people who are not vastly familiar with the Bible have heard the story of Jonah, how he was called by God to preach to a foreign city but fled in the opposite direction, as we read just a moment ago, how uh, the sailors reluctantly threw him overboard when the Lord caused a storm to stir up the sea on Jonah's account, how God appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah and take him back to land, and how Jonah was spat out on dry land and was made to go fulfill the commission that he had originally been given to go and preach to the city of Nineveh. These are, this is one of the best-known stories in the entire Bible. But the question I want to ask today is, what does it all mean? What, what lesson or series of lessons are we to learn from the story of Jonah? Well, I think to answer these questions properly, it would be helpful if we had a little background information. Uh, first of all, what do we know about Jonah, the man. Who was he? Uh, What can be known about him? Well, in the first verse, he is said to be the son of a man by the name of Amittai. Again, verse 1 says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. And you say, well, that's fine, but who is this fellow? Uh, Well, as it turns out, we really don't know anything about him. Uh, We just have his name, um, and that's all. And there's nothing else either in the book of Jonah or in the rest of the Bible that tells anything, tells us anything about Amittai. Uh, there is, however, a bit of information that we find in another book of the Bible about Jonah, um, and that is First Kings chapter, I'm sorry, Second Kings chapter 14. And so if you would turn with me there, we'll be looking at verses 23 through 25, and they're just kind of a passing reference uh, to the prophet Jonah. We learn just a few details about him there. 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 23 through 25. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. Now, notice that there are two Jeroboams mentioned in this verse. Uh, The first is the current king um, that's mentioned. I've got to catch up my slides here, don't I? The first is that Jeroboam, uh, the current king, who was known as actually Jeroboam II, and it says that he followed in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. He was the first king of the northern kingdom of Israel. And it says that, that this Second Jeroboam, who is no relation to the first, 
walked in the same sins as the first Jeroboam did. Then in verse 25, it says, He restored the border of Israel from Lebo-Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from Gath-Hefer. So here he's mentioned in another place besides the book of Jonah. And here we learn just a few more things about him, a few additional details. Uh, the first of these is that we learned that he was from the city of Gath-Hefer. Now, everybody knows where that is, right? As it turns out, when Melinda and I were in the Holy Land this past year, our tour guide, as we were standing on Mount Precipice, which is just outside to the south of the city of Nazareth, our tour guide said, now look north, there on that hill you see Nazareth, and over on the other side of the hill, and I don't remember the name that he gave to the city, but I suppose it was Gath-Hefer, he said over on the other side of that hill, a couple of miles, is the city of the prophet Jonah, and that city was Gath-Hefer. And here you see a map with Gath-Hefer up to the north, about 10 miles to the, to the west of the Sea of Galilee, and again about three miles north of the city of Nazareth. So we learn the place where he lived in the northern kingdom of Israel. We learn, secondly, that he lived and prophesied during the reign of Jeroboam II. This places him in the first half of the 8th century B.C., and we don't know exactly when during this period Jonah flourished, but most scholars put the date between 780 and 760 B.C. Third, we learned that Jonah had other prophetic assignments besides what we find in the book of Jonah. It says here that he prophesied that Jeroboam, the king of Israel, would extend the borders of Israel and recover the territory that had been lost to the Assyrians uh, the century before. About 80 to 100 years before this, the Assyrians had come down from the north. They captured the northern parts of the kingdom of Israel and what's called the Transjordan, the eastern side of the Jordan River. And Jonah prophesied that Jeroboam, the king reigning during his period, would retake that land. And so it turned out to be the case. Now, surprisingly enough, we don't know for sure who wrote the book of Jonah. It might have been Jonah himself. But because the book is so consistently critical of Jonah, most scholars believe it was written by someone else, although we don't know who. The book is unlike the other minor prophets in that it's largely an historical narrative about Jonah and his ministry rather than a prophecy or series of prophecies given by God through him. And as you read through the book of Jonah, and if you're familiar with the other minor prophets, you realize that this is the case. It reads differently than the other minor prophets. There are a hundred, about 1,100 words in the book of Jonah, but only 114 of them are direct quotations of God's speech, God directly speaking to people. And these are all spoken to Jonah himself rather than to the city of Nineveh where Jonah was sent to prophesy. Jonah himself only speaks eight words to the people of Nineveh. We find them in chapter 3 and verse 4. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Eight words in English, only five words in Hebrew. So he's sent to preach to the city of Nineveh, and we have only that much of what he preached to the city of Nineveh. Now, surely he said more than this. This is only a summary, I, I suppose, of what Jonah said. But this is all that's contained of the message God gave to Jonah to speak to the people of Nineveh. So again, the point is that this is quite different from the other minor prophets, which focus heavily on the words that God speaks 
uh, to his intended audience. So even though the book of Jonah finds its place among the minor prophets, it's largely an historical narrative rather than a prophecy. It's a narrative about the prophet himself, Jonah, and his response to God's call to go and preach to Nineveh. Now, some people have made the historicity of Jonah an issue because of the rather sensational claim that he was swallowed by a great fish and was preserved alive for three days and three nights before the fish spat him out on dry land. And they suggest on this basis that the book must be a parable or an allegory or a fable. Besides, they argue, how credible is it that the people of Nineveh would repent at the preaching of a Hebrew prophet? But there are several reasons to take the events of the book as historical, real historical events. In the first place, Second Kings presents Jonah as a real historical figure, as we've seen, living during the days of Jeroboam II, and that he prophesied things that truly did come to pass in history. We can verify it from extra-biblical historical sources that these events that Jonah prophesied concerning Israel's retaking of land once conquered by the Assyrians, that this really did happen. And so there is a real historical setting and context for the person of Jonah. Um, And normally, parables, fables, and allegories um, tend to focus on fictional characters, Uh, So there's a difference um, in this regard if we were to take Jonah as a parable or allegory. Secondly, the primary reason for questioning the historical character of the book is its account of Jonah surviving the encounter with the great fish. This is impossible, people say. If anybody were to be swallowed by a great fish, whether it's a, a whale or a shark or some other creature that we don't know for sure but was large enough to swallow a human being, there's no way he could survive for three days and three nights. Therefore, it must be... Uh, a parable, or an allegory. Others who have wished to defend the historical character of the book have cited a story about an English fisherman named James Bartley who was said to have survived a similar experience near the Falkland Islands while on a whaling ship called the Star of the East in the 1890s. But the story is of very questionable provenance. In fact, the wife of the ship's captain wrote a letter to the public in which she said... There is not one word of truth in the whale story. I was with my husband all the years he was on the Star of the East. There was never a man lost overboard while my husband was on her. The sailor has told a great sea yarn. You you may have heard the story of James Bartley before, but apparently it's an entirely made-up story. Uh, In fact, the Star of the East, the ship upon which this supposedly happened, was not a whaling ship at all. Um, It was a merchant ship, um, and checking back in the records, there was never a sailor on this ship by the name of James Bartley. But I would submit to you that the whole effort to prove the historicity of Jonah by finding a similar incident with a survivor, surviving being swallowed by a great fish, that the whole effort is misguided. There is every reason to believe Jonah's survival was a miracle. All right, we don't have to say, well, it's theoretically possible for somebody to survive under these circumstances. The story reads as if it was a miracle. It was, it was only by the great power of God that he survived. And this is the whole point of Jonah's great saying at the end of chapter 3, a psalm or song of thanksgiving and praise to God. The very last line, he says, salvation is of the Lord. He is praising God, singing God's praises that God saved him from the depths of the sea and saved him from the belly of the great fish. It was a miracle on God's part. And as for the credibility of the people 
Uh, the idea of the, of the people of Nineveh repenting at the preaching of a Hebrew prophet, one scholar has written, things were not going well at all for the Ninevites at approximately the time Jonah served as prophet. Military and diplomatic losses internationally were coupled with famine and popular uprisings domestically. In addition, both an earthquake and an eclipse, dreaded major omens to the Assyrians, were experienced concurrent to these other problems. In other words, there were external troubles, there were internal troubles, there was famine, there was earthquake, signs in the heavens, and so on, that would make the people perhaps even more susceptible to paying heed to a foreign prophet, especially a prophet who has come from a land which has just inflicted a major defeat on your own military forces. And so all of these things probably created a greater mystical air about Jonah's message and made them more likely to pay heed to it. The third reason to believe in the historicity of the events is that Jesus referred to Jonah as a real historical person and to what he experienced as a real historical event. And I think for anybody who believes in Jesus, this is decisive. If this is how Jesus presents the account of Jonah, then this, is, this must be, in fact, the case. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. Here Jesus refers to Jonah, and as he speaks of him, it's quite obvious that he understands Jonah as a real historical person and the things that he experienced in the book of Jonah as a real historical series of events. So Matthew chapter 12 beginning at verse 38. And by the way, there are other places where Jesus mentions Jonah as well. So, verse 38, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something that greater than Solomon is here. Now, if the account of Jonah and the great fish was not a real historical event, it wouldn't be a very clear example or type of our Lord's resurrection, right? Jesus points to the experience of Jonah, three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, and then coming out, emerging alive, he points to this as a type, an example of his resurrection. Well, if it's all a fable, all an allegory, and it didn't really happen, it loses something of its potency, doesn't it, as an example. It doesn't seem to be very meaningful. I think we have every reason to believe that these were real historical events, as, as unusual as the events are. So back to our original question. What are we to make of the book of Jonah? What are we supposed to learn from it? Well, there are several lessons, I think, that the original Jewish readers would have gleaned from the book. First, God will punish sinful cities and nations. God not only dealt with the nation of Israel as a nation, but with other nations as well. And we have numerous examples of this. I would point you just to one this morning, and that is Jeremiah chapter 18 
where God speaks of how he will deal with various nations based on an eternal uh, standard of righteousness, an ethical standard that he holds nations to. Jeremiah chapter 18, beginning in, verses, uh, beginning in verse 7, the Lord has just told Jeremiah to go into the potter's house. In fact, let's, let's start from the beginning. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. Have you ever seen a, a potter's wheel as he's shaping clay into uh, vessels of various kinds? I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to do. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And notice here that he's speaking not just about uh, the country or the nation of Israel or the nation of Judah, but he says any nation or kingdom. If I give them a word, a word of warning that I will destroy them because of their evil and they turn from their evil, then I will relent of the disaster that I had intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom, again, not just Israel and Judah, that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do to it. So what was true then, by the way, is true also today. God deals with nations as nations, just like he deals with individuals as individuals, according to a standard of righteousness uh, that, that he himself um, uh, expresses by his very own being. God expects and requires individuals and nations to walk according to the light that they have received. God expected it of Nineveh a notoriously brutal regime, as we'll see. And he expects it of all nations at all times. So again, the first lesson to be learned from the book of Jonah is that God will punish sinful cities and nations. The message of Jonah to the city of Nineveh was a message of impending judgment for their evil. And we'll talk in subsequent messages about uh, the nature of the brutality of their regime and how it was certainly appropriate in God's justice um, to to judge the city. The second lesson to be learned from the book is that God delights to show mercy to those who repent. The first, again, is that God will punish sinful cities and nations, but the second lesson is that God delights to show mercy toward those who repent. The message of Jonah to the city of Nineveh was a message of judgment, but its purpose was to prompt the people to repent so that God might have mercy. Upon them. And third, God's delight to show mercy to repentant sinners extends even to the Gentiles. And this is what is remarkable about the story of Jonah. Because normally throughout the period of the Old Testament, we find God dealing it's seemingly exclusively with the people of Israel. 
And this is one of the remarkable, the book of Jonah is a remarkable anticipation of one of the major developments in the New Testament, that God's gift of salvation is not just for the Jews, but for all people from all nations. This comes into sharper focus in the New Testament with the coming of Christ, as Jesus commissions the apostles to take the gospel to the four corners of the earth, make disciples of all nations, he said. But there are many passages in the Old Testament that point in the same direction, that this is God's ultimate redemptive purpose. This is God's ultimate concern, is to take the salvation that he initially grants to Israel, that he then, after the coming of Messiah, is going to extend the promise of salvation to all the nations of the earth. It was never God's intention to deal with Israel alone, although the way he dealt with them was unique in giving them the law and sending them the prophets and so on. But the calling of Israel as a people was in order to. In other words, it was not an end in itself, but it was a means to another end. God called Abraham and chose his descendants after him and formed a people from his descendants, formed Israel as a nation to bring the Messiah into the world. And all of this with a view to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And we see this from the very beginning when God first calls Abraham, when his name had not yet been changed, his name is Abram, Genesis chapter 12. God says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. That you will be, it's not just, Abraham, I want to bless you because I think you're so great and I just want to bless you. And that's my entire purpose in life is to bless you and your descendants after you, and that that's as far as it goes. He says, no, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make you a blessing, which, by the way, we ought to receive all of God's blessings that way, to realize that his, his great work in us is not merely for us, but for us and through us to other people as well. I will bless you, and I will make you so that you will be a blessing. He goes on to say, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, he says, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, how would all the families of the earth, or all the nations of the earth, be blessed in Abraham? Ultimately, through one of his descendants, the Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ. We see this in the prophet Isaiah where God addresses the Messiah. 700 years before Jesus appears on the scene, Isaiah, the evangelical prophet, is often referred to because in in Isaiah, more so than in any other of the prophets, we see the evangel, the message of good news, of salvation through a coming redeemer, more clearly than in any other prophets. 700 years before Messiah appears, God is speaking to him. And he says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved ones of Israel. This is God the Father speaking to God the Son as the Messiah, his redemptive work. When the time comes, it is too light a thing, too small a thing for you simply to work redemptively for the people of Israel. Too small. It's not commensurate with your glory. You are God manifest in human flesh. My glory shines in you and through you 
How small, too small a thing would it be simply to confine my redemptive activity in you to the people of Israel? I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. We have this clearly revealed in the prophet Isaiah in this passage and in many others as well, that God's redemptive purpose is as broad and as wide as the earth itself. In the book of Jonah, we have a marvelous expression of God's missionary outreach to the nations that would only come to full fruition with the advent of the Messiah. In this way, the book of Jonah teaches us something about the wideness of God's mercy. We should never pray, Lord, bless us, bless us for and no more, you know. You know, our, our prayer should it be as wide as the earth itself in terms of praying for the triumph of the gospel, praying for those who uh, don't yet know the Lord, regardless of their race or their socioeconomic background, regardless of the language they speak, regardless of whether they were brought up in a Christian home or a pagan home. God's mercy, God's redemptive purpose is to make the message of his salvation go to every single heart, to every pair of ears. May they hear the gospel, and by God's blessing, may they respond to it so that God might show them his mercy. So <clears throat> the book of Jonah teaches us, among other things, that God's mercy is not just for his own people Israel, but for Gentiles too. Fourthly, the essential point of the book, it seems to me, is that Israel should not begrudge God's mercy to the Gentiles. <clears throat> If the main point had simply been that God delights to show mercy to the Gentiles, the book could have ended in chapter 3. But it ends in chapter 4 with God's rebuke of Jonah for being disappointed that Nineveh wasn't destroyed. Right? The whole purpose, it seems to me, of God telling uh, the story of Jonah, of leaving a record of it for us in the Bible, is to rebuke the stinginess of this peevish prophet who was disappointed and angered that his enemies and the enemies of Israel should receive the mercy of God. Jonah wanted Nineveh destroyed. In chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, it says, It displeased Jonah exceedingly that God did not destroy Nineveh, and he was angry. He suffered disappointment and anger that people received the mercy of of God. This is why I call him a peevish prophet. He was irritated, annoyed, angered, disappointed because his enemies and the enemies of Israel received the mercy of God. And it says in chapter 4 again, he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my own country? That is, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and merciful God. You see, he had a right conception of the nature of God. I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. That's why I fled. <laughs> I didn't want the people of Nineveh to receive this kindness of yours. So he knew all about God's kindness and his willingness to forgive, to show mercy. He knew that if he would go and he would preach the message that God gave him, that he was going to destroy the city if they did not repent, and that if they should happen to repent, God would have mercy on them, and that was the last thing Jonah wanted. That's why he fled. He didn't want it to happen. He didn't want them to be forgiven. Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, Israel's greatest enemy. 
and he preferred that they be wiped off the face of the planet. So he rebelled against the call of God, and he fled in the opposite direction. But you know the story of how God got his attention and sent him back to Nineveh so that he would eventually fulfill his commission. And after a few back and forths between God and Jonah, after God let it be known that because they repented, I'm not going to destroy the city, a few back and forths where Jonah is expressing his discontent, his disappointment, his anger, the book ends this way with God saying, Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? In other words, they're pagans living in darkness. And should I not pity them? I have sent you as a prophet to them to preach of impending judgment. They have turned away, and we'll see it was momentarily. They have turned away from their iniquity. Should I not have mercy Upon them. This stands as a rebuke to Jonah's stinginess, his peevishness. Should I not pity them? Should I not offer them a chance to repent and find mercy? The book of Jonah extols the great mercy of God. Sometimes perhaps we feel like God don't have mercy on our enemies. Sometimes we feel like maybe, you know, a few years ago when ISIS was making such a to do in the Middle East and and we might be very eager to call on God to destroy them, to wipe them out to, because of the great evil that they did. And by the way, the things that they were doing, beheading people, innocent people, men, women, children, crucifying people, this was the same kind of thing the ancient Assyrians were doing. The things that they left in, in archaeological discoveries where you see their artwork and they're boasting about the things that they do to their enemies, cutting off their limbs, cutting off their noses, dragging them through the streets with a, with a hook or a claw uh, through their lips. They boasted about these things. They gloried in these things. The earliest forms of crucifixion were invented uh, by the Assyrians, impaling people on stakes, impaling them alive and letting them suffer that way. And we might understand, okay, well, you know, if I was called to go preach to those people, I might simply out of fear not want to go there. And that may have been a part of Jonah's thinking, but the text lets us know very clearly that that wasn't the major reason why he turned and went the other direction. The reason he turned and went in the other direction is because he said, I don't want those people to repent and receive God's mercy. And so the book of Jonah stands as a rebuke to Jonah, the man who doesn't want his enemies to receive mercy, and thereby it stands as a rebuke to any of us also who perhaps are too stingy uh, with God's mercy as well. Remember the words of James, our Lord's brother. In James chapter 2, verse 13, judgment is without mercy to the one who shows no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What that verse is telling us, as so many other passages of the Bible are telling us, but nowhere so succinctly and I think so powerfully, is that God much prefers mercy. Yes, he will bring judgment when he deems it necessary. He will punish iniquity. He will punish sin. And especially if a person remains impenitent to the end of his days, there's nothing but a fearful looking for of judgment. But God would much rather a person repent and receive his mercy. 
Why will you die, O house of Israel? He says to his prophet Isaiah. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? God asks. No, but rather that they would repent and live. Yes, they may be worthy of judgment and death, but God says mercy triumphs over judgment. Give me a reason to have mercy upon you. Show me some hopeful sign of repentance because I would love to extend my grace and forgiveness to you. God is a God of great mercy, and he expects the same from us. Right? The first part of that verse in James, judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Right? In God's character, he delights, he prefers mercy to judgment, and he's teaching us that the same should be true for us. And if it's not, judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. God expects us to be merciful. Now, there's been, or has there ever been, a greater display of God's mercy than what we find in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ? And when you think about it, could there ever be a greater display of God's mercy than what we find in the cross of Christ? In fact, there at the cross, we find justice and mercy meeting together. Because in God's justice, he punishes sin at the cross. In the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, who bears the weight of the sin of the world, he punishes sin. His sense of justice is satisfied. He judges sin, but in that same act, he shows mercy. Because that judgment falls on Christ and not on those who believe in him. So, Jesus receives the judgment that we should have received so that we might receive mercy. Justice and mercy meet in the cross, and what a wonderful gospel truth that is. That is the good news in a nutshell, that we receive mercy from God through Jesus Christ at the cross. And this is what we celebrate when we come to the Lord's table. When we eat together the Lord's Supper, We are partaking of the emblems of the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. His body broken for us, his blood poured out for us, so that we might be forgiven by his mercy. Let us pray. Father in heaven, how great you are. Your character, your attributes, your glory, your goodness, Lord, are amazing. And we just barely scratch the surface in our understanding of these things. And yet, Father, we pray that you would deepen our understanding. May we be filled with awe and reverence and gratitude, Lord, for the totality of all of your attributes and how they fit together so perfectly that you know when it's right and appropriate to exercise judgment and you know when it's right and wise to extend mercy. We thank you that in Christ Jesus, These two of your attributes have met together. Our sins have been punished, satisfying your justice, but they've been punished in Christ. Thank you for the consequent mercy that we've received through him. Lord, would you bless the bread and bless the cup that we're about to partake of, that they may be fitting emblems of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And may we by faith reach out to you, even in the act of eating and drinking, reach out to you in faith and receive all the benefits of Christ's redemptive work. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.